Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the actor Rufus Wright. Rufus has been in loads of things. He's been in James Bond films and Star Wars films. He's been in Assassin's Creed. He's been on Broadway opposite Helen Mirren. He's done loads of stuff at the National. He played Neil Armstrong in the TV version of Going to the Moon. I mean, he's done lots of things. But for this podcast, the important thing about Rufus is it turns out he's a fan of the Canadian prog rock band Rush. When challenged to name an album that gave him great comfort, chose the first Rush album, Rush, Rush. And I like that album, so we thought we should probably talk about it. Hello. Hi, Joel. Hello. Welcome to the recording area. We are going to discuss something which you suggested talking about, which immediately made me laugh mm. because we have to talk about this. Mm. It's a, a shared thing, yeah. an intimate thing, maybe a secret thing. Yes. Because I was delighted to find out when challenged to name a heavy metal record that you liked, that you <laughs> named this one. It's, it's Rush's first album, Joel. Rush's first album, yeah. Rush. That's right. Rush by the band Rush. Yes. 1974. Correct. Yeah, and that's a, that's a very interesting album to choose because I think it's the one that even Rush fans don't like. Well, especially Rush fans. <laughs> Rush fans notoriously are incredibly rude about Rush's first album. And fair-weather Rush fans like me consider it an absolute masterpiece it's a banger isn't it mm. i mean to be honest i'm a massive rush head i certainly was a massive rush head. yeah yeah and when you said that you liked what we call R- rush the runt of the rush litter <laughs> rush rush yeah i went good because yeah. i like the first rush album as well yeah so th- let's just share that i mean we like it exactly and as you said it's a very good idea to do a podcast about an album that that most rush fans don't consider very good <laughs> And 
as I said to you uh, on many occasions, I'm no Rush super fan. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very embarrassed to admit I haven't read the biographies and I, I don't know all the words to The Fountain of Lamneth. You oh, know, I, I, you're a disgrace. I can't <laughs> exactly. believe you're even here. So it's very important that listeners know that th- this is a podcast about <laughs> Rush's first album. And, you know, we may stray into other areas, yeah. but but don't expect a clear analysis of the progression of Rush's core content and so on, because I just don't have it. We were talking about the appeal to young men, mainly, mm-hmm. of heavy metal and hard rock and when that hits you. And we were naturally about it and saying it hits certain kids at certain times and they just go mad for heavy metal. That, that, that appeal might stay with you or it might just be a little phase you go through. The simplicity and the noise and the fun of it hits you. And you said you weren't a big heavy metal nut at all. It wasn't something that really caught you. No, not really. And I've never really been to Metallica or Megadeth or Slayer or Thunder or any of the kind of big heavy uh, heavy metal bands. I'm in a band, or I sort of was in a band at university called Megalodon. Fantastic. Deliberately misspelt pronunciation of Megalodon. <laughs> so that's Megalodon. <laughs> yes, not Megalodon, Megalodon. Most of our songs are about how great we are and about how terrifying prehistoric sharks are. <laughs> And it's a kind of grey area as to whether or not we're singing about the band itself or the prehistoric shark. Yeah. Children, believe us. Let Mogalodon run your world. Always no need to fear us. Let Megalodon run your world. But most of our songs, your gods, Megalodon, Megalodon can run the world, Megalodon can save the world. The Day Megalodon Died, which is our seven-minute epic. (laughs) So I'm certainly heavy metal influenced. But my interest, and I think we'll dig deeper into this, is how Rush somehow, with this first album, managed to make what they do so accessible and yet aspirational. Do you know what I mean? You listen to this music, and it's so incredibly simple. And the lyrics are, are banal in the extreme. And we'll discuss <laughs> quite how banal they are. But there's something that says you could do this. There's a, there's a Christmas Day guitar sort of feel about it yeah. that's incredibly mesmeric and magnetic. And you really want to kind of find out more about it. And then you, you go, in, go in circles because you listen like I did. Or you get introduced to it when you're maybe 12 or 13. And you get obsessed with it. And then you sort of grow out of it. And then you come <laughs> back to it when you're middle-aged and go, why do I love this ridiculous music so much? The history of Rush is that Rush form in the late 60s in Canada and they're a bunch of bookish nerds and they have a drummer called John Rutsey Mm. who is an old friend, old hockey playing friend of guitarist Alex Lifeson and they form a band together and they join forces with Geddy Lee who's the bassist and very, very high singer and the idea is that John Rutsey will write all the lyrics and then on the day before they record the album, John Rutsey says, I haven't written any lyrics, mm. or I wrote them and I was embarrassed and threw them all away. Mm. And Geddy Lee very, very quickly writes a load of lyrics that are kind of boilerplate, Led Zeppelin, bad <clears throat> company, cock rock. Yeah. Which is sort of what people were into at the time. But he writes them and they're very unconvincing versions of Robert Plant. Yeah, they are. Some of my, I mean, <laughs> I've got a couple of my favourites. There's there's, there's sort of an obsession with, well, In the Mood, which was basically my favourite song in the whole world for about four years. 
in the mood is spectacular. This it's, isn't Glenn Miller's in the mood. This is Geddy no, Lee's in the mood. With almost more cowbell <laughs> than you can handle. Walken levels of cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell. One of the famous lyrics that almost anyone will remember is, Hey baby, it's a quarter to eight. I feel I'm in the mood. Which is just, even on its own, is rather nice. The idea of being on, in the mood at, at 7.45, a quarter to eight. Before I'm carriages have even arrived. Before you've even headed to the dance. Exactly. He's in the mood. He's priapic on the stairs. Exactly. <laughs> and the next line is, Hey baby, the hour is late. <laughs> I feel I've got your mood. And I think, well, 7.45 isn't late for... I mean, unless you're a baby, it's not... <laughs> It's not Maybe late for it's a anyone. Song from the point of view of a horny baby. It is. I mean, Their logo, the Rush logo on the first album, yeah. pretty much stayed with it for the rest of their career. Oh, it's so touching when you see their flight cases wheeled in, yeah. and there's all these guys are now in their fifties, and the flight cases are wheeled into the massive sports arena. They're now playing in the late nineties, early two thousands, yeah. and stencil on the side is the Rush logo. Yeah. That was on the first album and never again. Yeah, but yeah. still, that's their logo. And it was it, uh, on the on the album. You'll see it's a sort of fuchsia pink color, as which is brilliantly inappropriate as well. It should have been bright red. Apparently, it should have yeah. been a sort of scarlet color. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it came out slightly wrong. But then they sort of <laughs> stuck with it. Uh, and again, it's a sort of shameful embarrassment of the first album, which I listened to a few kind of Rush podcasts preparing for this. And they sort of only ever mention it with a kind of embarrassed kind of shrug because it's not cool to like the first album at all. And they and a lot of them quoted their favourite lyrics and no one no one's ever got a favourite lyric from the first album. Apart from you. Apart from me, because you know, looking for a looking for a lover for about a week. About that's, a week. that's something. <laughs> but the, the, as I said before, the guilelessness of yeah. those lyrics is so charming, I think. That is what's amazing about this. We should talk about this because I think this is why Rush are magical. Mm. So the band Rush are going to become are the sort of very expansive prog rock sci-fi epic bands with whole sides, which are stories of like uh, Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, but in space with computers and <laughs> incredibly complex things. And these are all the work of Neil Peart, who's the drummer who takes over after John Rutsey pulls out because he's got diabetes and it's dangerous for him to be drinking this much on tour. Mm. So John Rutsey, the original drummer, pulls out. Neil Peart takes over. He writes all these lyrics. In some ways, he was very serious and we were totally goofy. Certainly, he had a bigger brain than us. That is the band the version with the space lyrics that every schoolboy dreams of being in. And that's the fantasy that Rush present. Mm -hmm. What I love is the version of Rush before Neil Peart joins is the clumsy, gauche school band that all of us have been in. That's right. Where no one wants to write the lyrics because it's embarrassing. Yeah. And someone says, well, I suppose it should be about girls. Yeah. Have you met a girl? <laughs> no. And that's the band who record Rush Rush. It's a Gregory's Girl geeky band. It is. They've not held hands. Yeah. And they've got songs about what they think holding hands is going to be like. Yeah. <laughs> When Peart takes over the lyric writing duties, Lee and Lifeson both say, well, that's good because we weren't really interested in doing that. And they noticed that he read regularly, <laughs> which was a really good excuse for them not to have to write the lyrics. He's got books. He's done books. He can it's, write them. And we said, look how many books he reads. Look at the words he uses. This guy is probably capable of writing lyrics. Which means we were spared many more Geddy Lee lyrics such as, I've been hustling here, I've been hustling there, I've been looking for about a week. Remember that? <laughs> and need some love. 
hustling here. I've been hustling there. I've been looking for about a week. <laughs> I started getting this strange sensation. My knees are started getting weak. Weak and weak. So he's rhyming weak and weak, much like Black Sabbath rhyming masses and masses. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with rhyming the same word, if, especially if you spell it differently. That's very clever. Yeah. Generals gathered in their masses. It's very, very literate. It rhymes. Yeah. Just like witches at Black Masses. I was a massive Rush fan. Mm. I, I discovered them at exactly the right age. I would have been around 16, 17. I was just mad, mad into them when I first got a guitar. I found them enormously inspiring. And I often say that the reason I don't have any tattoos is if I had a tattoo age 18, it probably would have been of, yes, you're doing the pose, the, the, pose. the man from 2112. Yeah. And because I didn't have a tattoo, I don't have that, so I'm not scarred by my teenage love of yeah. Rush. But yeah. I loved Rush. Huge fan of all their career. And I heard in a record shop about five years ago 2112 came on, their classic album, and I was in the shop and I thought, oh, this is 2112. And it came on and I thought, I don't like this at all. <laughs> I mean, this is a terrible, terrible record. And it was almost proof of that Chinese idea that every atom of you is replaced every few years, <laughs> that you are now a different person. And I thought, yeah. I don't recognise the person who this was their favourite record. Mm. Normally, if you hear a record you love as a teenager, they get a rush of nostalgia. If I rush. hear Doolittle mm. by the Pixies, mm. I remember my excitement to hearing Doolittle by the Pixies. Mm. Weirdly, I mean, even stuff from before I liked Rush. Metallica, Dire Straits, mm. I get a rush of nostalgia. Mm. With Rush, I get a rush of embarrassment yeah. that I was really into this. But Shame. Mm. But it does tell you how private and special they were. Yeah. That that was your thing that you loved. Mm. And you can't even remember or recognise yourself in it. Yeah. And then three or four songs in, I realise I do really like them after all. But that first punch of embarrassment at Rush, mm. the 20-minute long uh, epics about Tolkien and goblins, yeah. the ridiculous, pretentious, Ayn Rand-inspired, pseudo-libertarian yeah. lyrics, yeah. Uh, the nerdiness of them, the complication, everything about them is massively embarrassing to an adult. Yes. But yeah. clearly magic to a kid. Well, the best thing about the first album is it's mercifully free of all of that sort of nonsense. <laughs> And when you it, say that nonsense, you mean the thing everyone likes about Rush. That's right. <laughs> it is mercifully free of the thing Rush fans think is key exactly. to loving Rush. Exactly. As I say, Fairweather kind of toe in the water Rush fans like me will hold on to the kind of the guilelessness of that of the first album which is is pretty much solid i'd say love songs i'm not sure if they quite qualify as love songs <laughs> but sort of songs about young lust yeah and i noticed actually something interesting about rush's later songs is there are no love songs really yeah. there aren't they don't write songs about girls anymore they've grown out of that and I think that's something I'm interested in thinking about as well, yeah. is, is Rush's first album is very much about, I really need a girl, I really need a girl. And then from the second album onwards, when Neil Peart starts writing the lyrics, it's very much about... Goblins. Uh, goblins. Space goblins, mainly. sort of... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
Bitor and the Snow Dog. What the hell was that all about? He reminds me of a sort of Victorian scientist. Or <laughs> he's constantly saying nature must be tamed or time is our old enemy or something. He's coming up with great grandiose claims about the world and kind of holding forth and then talking about goblins and waterfalls and stuff. When I Think, but just sing us a love song. The joy of Rush to me is that guilelessness doesn't leave them after the first album. The joy of Rush is that lovely geekiness is what's in the other albums that everyone takes very, very, very seriously. Mm. There are these astonishing musicians. I mean, skyscrapingly good players. Yes. Brilliant band. Allied to a sort of naivety that says, well, someone's got to write the words. What will the words be about? And the answer, as we all know in a school band, is no one wants to write the words. Mm. So they're always about girls, done really clumsily, mm. first album, or books you've read. Yeah. Rest of Rush's career. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that is what's charming about Iron Maiden and charming about Kate Bush. Yeah. What do you write about? I've read a book. Iron Maiden have a song called Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. All that A-level yeah. set text things. The idea that Wuthering Heights is any different to that. I've read a book. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Because I've written lyrics. You may have written lyrics. You mm. never have anything to write about. It's incredibly embarrassing yeah, yeah. to be asked to express yourself and then sing. Yeah. So... No one wants to do it, really, unless yeah. they're an absolute egotistical maniac. You always have to wait for someone to step up to the plate. Yeah. And I love the fact the first album reveals that no one wanted to do it in Rush. Yeah, I think the, <laughs> the answer to the... Because listening to Rush's first album begs the question of every 16-year-old uh, boy, let's face yeah. it, pro- hopefully girl as well, uh, or non-binary person, can my band sound this good? And yeah. the answer is no, because you aren't as good a uh, musician as any of these three. Okay, really. Uh, John Rotzi's a great drummer. Fantastic you know. drummer. Everyone says, well, you left off the first album, and we talked about why. But there's no doubt that his drumming on this tra- on this album is absolutely extraordinary. He didn't leave because he was shit. He didn't even leave for, yeah. for Pete Best reasons. He's that old school friend. He left because if he'd carried on touring and drinking, he would be he dead. He would have died, yeah. It's he, incredibly demanding to be in a 70s rock band. You're on the road a lot. Yeah, and I think he died in 2008 or something. Yeah, yeah. complications from diabetes. Really so sad. he was, he was yeah. not a particularly strong person. That's another lovely thing about Rush. They're nerds. They're vulnerable. Their <laughs> drummer had diabetes. And I found that out. I went, oh, yeah. good. Yeah. I bet the other ones have got asthma. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I bet one of them's got like... If they had calipers, yes. that would be even better. Yeah. They, they should just be... It's three tiny Tims. Yeah. I want them... They're sort of bookish and clever and nerdy, and they sing for those people, people yeah. who like science fiction and like Tolkien and things. Yeah. I love that about them. And then Alex entered my life in junior high school. We liked the same kind of bands, but I think we bonded more over our goofiness than over music. I'm interested in, in whether or not... Neil Peart particularly, had a sense of humour. Because we both have a thing about humourlessness. Anything which has no, yeah. no humour in it at all is, is kind of rotten. And 
looking through Russia's later catalogue, there's almost nothing about love and there's almost nothing with any jokes in it at all. Not that many bands no. write songs with jokes in them, but even a little bit of a, a smile in the eyes yeah. sometimes. But there's, it's, it's very, very serious and very po-faced. And yet, they freely appear in South Park. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, oh, one, two, three. And in yeah. that, I, I, I Love You, Man, was it that that uh, bromance film with yeah. Jason Segel? Sid and I have gotten pretty good at a couple of Rush songs. What do you mean, like fast-paced rock? No, like Rush. Like the band Rush. I don't know them. The Holy Triumvirate. The- Wait, you don't know Rush? No. They're okay to be sent up, and they'll laugh along if someone sends them up. So they, they, they have got a sense of humour about their sort of reputation. So, uh, what's left to do? I'll tell you what. Rush concert! <laughs> Yeah. But I'm not sure that their output has a sense of humour, if you see what I mean. Yeah, they're very serious minded. I'm, I'm like you, I don't like things that don't have a sense of humour. Mm. I always got the feeling they were always sort of smiling and laughing and enjoying their virtuosity. They were having a good time. Yeah. They feel, I mean, they are, as this album proves, an outcrop of that sudden rush of enthusiasm for British rock that is Led Zeppelin. And there aren't many jokes on Led Zeppelin albums, and the ones that are there shouldn't be there, they're not very good. <laughs> but you know that they found their preposterous size hilarious. Mm. There's, a, there's a wink and a, and a sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek thing about Led Zeppelin that's a bit, not as directly camp as Queen, yeah. but the bigger they are, the funnier they find it. Yeah. And I don't know whether Rush... Are or aren't in on the joke that they're preposterous? I'm never quite sure. I think they. I think when they're approached by comics who admire them, like I think uh, I can't remember if it was uh, Parker or Stone in the South mm. Park, who was a huge fan, and said, "Please, can we send you up?" And it seems to me you live your life like a flower breaking wet. And they, I think they kind of looked around and went, "Yeah, fine." they don't want to be seen not to enjoy the kind of funny side I think they get the gag yes they They, do they they seem to be generous about the gag they don't uh, reject it and I think when you suggested this I said great and I I think I texted you and said I'm listening to loads of Rush and I'm really laughing Mm. because I find how much I enjoy them funny Mm. it's almost a joke on me I really like Rush yes and I listen to loads of it and loads of it's familiar from a very dear part of my life that Mm. I had Rush on my headphones for years I found a Rush pinball machine on uh, Brighton Pier you did and I don't think I've put more money in a machine in ages <laughs> just because it kept playing bits of Bite or the Snow Dog and I kept oh. laughing. <clears throat> it was fantastic. And yeah. In fact, their Canadian makes it even funnier. Just the voices are great. Yeah. Rush culturally turn up in loads of things. They've got the same kind of cultural footprint as Kiss. They've got a weight on a nerdy character or a rock character in, in a drama or a comedy is into Rush. It's got the same resonance as them being into Kiss. Mm. It's immediately funny. It's Saturday night. I have no date. A two-litre bottle of Shasta and my all-Rush mixtape. Let's rock. And they toured with Kiss. It couldn't be further from them. Yeah. And, and Gene Simmons said he thought they were gay because they had so little interest in sort of groupies and things afterwards. They would yeah. just retire to their rooms like clerics and just read um, yeah, yeah. books and things. Yeah. But they've got that weight. So they turn up in things. So in Freaks and Geeks, Jason Segal's character is constantly referring to Neil Peart wants a 32-piece drum kit. Yeah. It's such a beautiful scene. If you've seen it, he's playing some big drum work. Yes. And his headphones. And then it cuts back to what it actually sounds like in the basement, and it's the worst noise possible. (laughs) 
his head, he's playing a big stadium. And I think that's what Rush are. Yeah. They're the band in your head that your school band was going to be. Yeah. Because you write lyrics about spacemen as well. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> I think Pert's on record as saying that he wanted to, fl- they wanted to kind of flatter the audience. I'm a big fan of David Simon's punchy, uh, <laughs> punchy quote, fuck the average viewer. Yeah, yeah. Which was basically, you know, I don't write television, but I know that a lot of people <laughs> who do are constantly told, oh, well, the average viewer isn't going to necessarily get this reference you've made, or the average viewer isn't going to, isn't going to know who this person is, or isn't going to get that joke. And if you're an artist or someone who writes or makes any content at all, you've got to, at some stage, say, you know what? Fuck the average viewer. I'm not going to write for the lowest common denominator. I'm going to write for the highest common denominator and trust that they're on board with me and they're going yeah. to be able to keep up. And if they miss the old reference, then big deal. Hopefully they don't feel stupid. Hopefully they'll enjoy the fact that they've got most of the other references. And if everybody writes for the lowest common denominator, no yeah. one's, nothing new, nothing good is ever yeah. going to happen, you know. That, um, there, is a, there is a very flattering uh, thing about Rush that they talk to you and say this is for you, you're probably quite nerdy, you're probably another musician. They're mm. a very, very musician's musician's band. When you see the list of people who cite Rush as an influence, it's loads of people who then took their ideas and their songwriting tricks and their guitar styles and their drumming styles and then made massive hits out of it. Mm. Kirk Hammett from Metallica goes on about what a huge influence Rush were and you go, oh, actually, most of Master of Puppets sounds like Rush. Yeah. But without that guy singing. Yeah. And maybe that's the key with Rush, is they've got a little barrier. There's a guy guarding getting into Rush. Yeah. And it's Geddy Lee. Yeah. Because he sings very, very high. Yeah. And if you don't like that, yeah. you won't listen to more than about two seconds. Yes, it's true. It the is gatekeeper. It's, he is the gatekeeper of listening to Rush. Yeah, you, you find out pretty early on whether or not you're going to get on with Russian by the sound of that that kind of slightly high-pitched, whiny voice. Which is, it's there on the first album. And oddly, the great thing, if you bring up Rush on your online streaming service that you listen to music on, play that first album, it's, it's Wildcat Howl. Fast forward to the mid-80s and he's, he's come down a bit. Hmm. I'm looking back, but I want to look around me allowed in unless you like all of it yeah you're not allowed in unless you like him screeching at the beginning because that's the noise of rush yeah and if you listen or if you even look through the some of the song titles of the later rush albums (laughs) (laughs) i've just got a few of my favorites here good it doesn't matter if you don't understand what they're singing about because geddy probably wasn't sure either what the hell was that all about he used to say to neil look here what's this about this Red Sector A, you know, where is Red Sector A? And if you're oh. listening, it doesn't really matter where Red Sector A is. Yeah, obviously, you don't realise it's, uh, it's an allusion to Holocaust. It's uh, Geddy's parents were Holocaust survivors. It's a very, very, very Maybe deep that's song, what yeah. It is. Um, <laughs> so, some other favourite titles, Subdivisions. I mean, that's just oh. a great name for a song, isn't it? That's also it's about living in the suburbs. Yeah. It's a, no, it's a song <laughs> to the suburban nerds to yeah. say, We see you. Yeah. It's quite late. They said, oh, let's do a song about our fans. Yeah, yeah. It's their version of From Me To You by The Beatles. Yes. And it says, you might not fit in. Yeah. I love subdivisions. Yeah. I listened to that before we turned out. Yeah, yeah. I'm very happy. I was really weeping. I think we shouldn't underestimate 
the voice of the Canadian teenager. Let's not forget how cold Canada gets as well. <laughs> they are in a very cold suburbs in yeah. a garage, in mum's garage, yeah. trying to write a song about trying to get a girl. Yeah. And that's how you come up with a song about subdivisions. Distant Early Warning. Oh, I mean, that's... What a, what a great title. <laughs> Sydney's X One Hemisphere. Yeah, that's got a colon in it as well. Some of the best songs have colons in them. Emotion Detector. Emotion Detector, yeah. yeah. Malignant Narcissism. <laughs> <laughs> the Fountain of Lamnath, we've mentioned already. Oh. Anagram brackets for Mongo. This is just great. I mean, these these are not going to be hits. Yeah. Weirdly, again, the first album shows you what Rush would be like if they wrote songs like where the titles was Ooh Baby, Ooh Baby, Ooh Baby. Mm. The answer is, no, you don't want that. No. That you do. Um, What the Rush fans want is Cygnus X1. Yes. Uh, Fountain of Lamneth, by the way, I mean, it's it's a it's an off-putting title yeah. from Caress of Steel. Their much derided album that preceded 2112, mm. which took the same formula forwards. I was in a guitar shop last week, showing off to one of the guys. Oh, yeah. Gave him a little bit of Fountain of Lamneth. Wow. The guy went, rush. And I went, it's still the currency of guitar shops. Yeah, right. It's amazing. I just did a little arpeggio from the middle of it, and he went, Yeah. Rush. There we go. I just felt, I felt 10 feet tall. That's probably, I bet you did. I bet you did. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Maybe we should talk about a couple of the individual tracks on Rush's first album. Obviously. <laughs> we got distracted by the rest of their work, which is so easy to do. Let's focus. Big magenta logo. Rush. Yeah. Rush. Rush. 74. Um, the opening track, Finding My Way, just t- takes me back to being that very contented 15-year-old boy. And, I, you know, full disclosure, I went to a, a, a boarding school and I probably arguably didn't have very much in common with a, a chilly Canadian teenager who wanted to get a girlfriend. But something in, in these songs really, really, really touched my heart. So the first track announces itself with such extraordinary elan and passion. And you think, yeah, this is a band saying, we're here. We're, you know, welcome to our sound. It's just a wall of guitar. Isn't yeah. it? It's just Alex Lifeson on his own standing yeah. up there. It's a slightly Angus Young. It's, there's an ACDC-ness to it. Oh, definitely. Which yeah. is obviously 74 is the year that ACDC start. Yeah. We've been playing a lot of dive bars mm. or in their case school gyms and you've got to get attention and it's stand up there guitar hero big riffs massive power chords 
And the first thing you think as a fan is, I want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, you can learn this stuff. You know, this is this is years before the internet. It's probably years before uh, tablature or you could buy the books from the music shop. But you could probably sit down and work it out. You're going to be able to bang out those basic riffs, I think. Yeah, it's, it's a kit. I mean, there's something really important about a power trio in that you can hear what everyone's doing. At this stage, certainly for this album as well, there's three instruments playing. Mm. There's not loads of synthesizers. There's not an acoustic guitar behind it. He's not even got a twin-necked guitar. Okay. <clears throat> it's a single noise coming off him, a single noise coming off Getty, and a single noise coming off John at the back. Mm. So if you want to know how to be in a band, these are the instructions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you can learn those parts. Yeah. And you can certainly learn the guitar parts. Yeah. There, there are riffs in it. It's got that clean ACDC Led Zeppelin free bad company yes. vibe to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And in that sense, it's welcoming you in and saying, don't just listen to this, play it. Pick up a guitar and play it yourself, because it's doable. But I would argue it's just slightly out of reach, which is why they're <laughs> rock stars and we aren't. Yes. You know what I mean? It is slightly better than you would be able to play, probably. Did you ever cover any Rush songs in, no, in bands? No, we didn't. I mean, I think about I think about the, some of the titles of our songs and the subjects of our songs. I think we, well, I was certainly very influenced by, by Rush, but I don't think we even attempted. Because you said you wouldn't do covers. Uh, I'm, mm. my, I've got a tape of my first school Ooh. band rehearsals Ooh. upstairs somewhere in front of the loft. And, and we do Working Man by oh. Rush, off Rush Rush, because oh, it's a goodness. great riff and you can learn it. Yeah. And obviously I can't play it as well as that, but we yeah. did try. Yeah. Proof, if proof be need if be, proof be, need be. Yeah. that it's a, an instruction manual for how to be in a school band. Yeah. The second song is Need Some Love, which starts all of a sudden. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with a song that starts all of a sudden. As we Everyone know. comes in at once. Vocals never Pretty much. I think the vocals come in a, a beat after the uh, the instruments. But it, it, it's 100 miles an hour and it's running down the street towards you. And it's, it's an unstoppable force. Uh, Getty is screaming straight away. Yeah. <laughs> as if to say, get out. If you don't like this voice, go away. Yeah. Oh, bless Getty. Yeah. Take a Friend, again, it's a song in which, uh, in the first verse, I think he says, looks like you've got no friends, no one to stick with you to the end. It's a pretty niche idea for a song, the idea of looking at someone and going, you haven't got any friends, you haven't got any mates. And he's not even saying you need a girlfriend, you just need an ally, you need someone who understands you. I don't know, did we used to take all our classes together? In grade nine we did. And one year we wrote each other's test. <laughs> we were almost finished the test and we said at the end, you sign my name, I'll sign yours. Okay. We were bad. Oh, yeah, I, I do yeah, remember. That's how bad we were. Yeah. We upset the teacher. <laughs> but the idea of writing a song that says, you might need a friend, I think the charm of this album is that, and you were in a band, I've been in bands, I think all of our first band rehearsals, we weren't this good a band or this good a set of musicians, but all my first bands sounded like this. Mm. As in, it was riffs. It was simple blocks of sound. Not as sophisticated as Rush were doing, but you'd have done a version of this. And then someone would have said, what can the song be about? And you go, can we just do instrumentals? Was mm. the first thing that all school bands say, because mm. no one wants to sing. And then someone agrees to sing, and they watch me sing about, a friend till the end. or And yes. your lyrics won't be any better than this. Yeah. And what they will mainly be is based on other songs you've heard. Yeah. So you'll have heard Carol King and you've gone, a friend till the end. Yeah. Or you'll have heard Led Zeppelin and you will do a version of a Led Zeppelin song. And this first album is 
aching with fandom. We were very similar. We both felt like we were really outside the rest of our class, the rest of our school, the rest of everything. And then we discovered this manic love for music that we both had. And they are just copying it. Yeah. This is the birth of a band. All bands sound like this. It's very much scrambled eggs as well. Yeah. It's it's filler it's, material. He's written these really quickly. <laughs> rhymes trying with lying, changing with rearranging, talking and walking. I think you need to do some grooving. Who do you think you're fooling? You know, it's so it's just ABC, it's building blocks. I think that's one of the charms of the album. You're not really listening to the lyrics. Yeah. You're just listening to the music. And the lyrics are just the loquus iptum lorem. Yeah, you know, it's, it's filler. that. It's just your filler. <laughs> All you're listening to is that. And it doesn't matter. Life needs rearranging. Who do you think you're changing? It doesn't really matter that that's bad. I'm just listening to it and enjoying it. I love the everybandness mm. of this first Rush album because I think that experience of being in a school band is very strange and very specific. And if you've done it, you'll know what it feels like. And if you haven't done it, you'll have no idea. Yeah. The awkwardness of this first album, the fact that this is before they become a huge prog beer moth, the clumsiness of the lyrics set against the incredible fluidity of the music is so charming because I think if you've ever been in a band, you've been there. Hmm. And your first band at school where someone said, write some lyrics and you've had to write them on a back of a piece of paper. And the terrifying thing, if someone says, we need to do harmonies for this, can you show me your lyrics? Hmm. You have to share them with someone else. Yeah. What if they see that I've written about Emma in the Year Below? Oh God, uh, they'll work out. They'll work out what, oh God, yeah. I've, I've, I've said a feeling. Your beautiful hair, your yeah. beautiful eyes. It remains embarrassing, that yeah. confession, that open-heartedness yeah. for most nerdy boys at school in a school band that first time you express yourself you become a poet is so embarrassing I think that's the magic of Rush yeah. that they're in a school band and I think it's magic if you've ever been in a school yeah and in a very sweet way they're trying on um, Daddy's Clothes, you know, <laughs> Working Man, which was their first breakthrough hit. You know, there was a, a female DJ, I can't remember her name, who played it on a on a on an American radio station. That in Cleveland. That's right, yeah. And uh, she kind of broke America for them. You know, yeah. they suddenly they suddenly got a career in America. And Working Man, uh, seek it out. It's a great song. It's a really good song. And it's about working really well. I mean, again, it's Geddy Lee's. He's 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 looking at the clock again. I get up at seven, yeah, and I go to work at nine. And I thought, well, Geddy. <laughs> that's two hours of lovely that's breakfast. two hours. That's a, <laughs> exactly. Loads of bacon. Loads of maple syrup. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he gets off at five in Working Man. I think he's working a nine to five. And Geddy, as, as we know, hasn't done a nine to five. And he's very much, I can just imagine him in Daddy's coat with the sleeves going over yeah. at the ends of his fingers and, and shuffling around the house in Daddy's shoes, trying to work out what it is big, strong grown-up men do richard scary where do people go all day exactly what do they do all day at, and they get up at seven and they go to work at nine and they work really really hard but that did tap into something because those cleveland industrial workers said hey these guys rushing what they're doing you know? 
Ashley's fans are incredibly dedicated to them because they sang to their fans. Mm. And the fans could be the working guys in Cleveland or people who've read a lot of books or nerdy kids who want to be in Led Zeppelin. They Mm. belong to people. And they've kept that all through their career. The the same feeling of these are nerds singing for other nerds. Lonely nerds singing for other nerds is just magical. Yeah. Before and after, do you remember before, before and after starts acoustically, very softly? There are quite a few sort of ballady songs on the album. I'd say two or three ballady songs. But Before and After sounds like it's going to be a ballad. And then, sort of rather like Dylan on tour, it goes electric almost Judas, exactly halfway. Away. Yeah, someone screams Judas <laughs> and he, he, he starts making an amazing sound on his electric guitar. It's yet another piece of evidence of where this band have come from, what they've been doing. Because you can't stand in a school gymnasium trying to get everyone's attention. You're doing school dances, but you're not doing the hits in the hit parade. You're out there playing this weird sort of sub-Led Zeppelin thing. You're going to drive people to the back. They're yeah. going to sit at the back and you'll realise you've won when everyone's standing at the back nodding. Yeah. That kind of a band. But I think they want to show their soulful side. And here again, <laughs> is, here again is a very long and romantic sounding sort of song. It's, it's a seduction sort of song. And Before and After starts the same way. And it's, it's Nigel Tufnell playing Lick My Love Pump. You it know? is. I, I remember asking a friend of mine who was very successful with girls, how, how do you do it? And he said... D minor. It is D minor. And he's absolutely right. There's no other, there's no other chord. possible key. <laughs> it's the kind of song that you might, having been in the mood at quarter to eight, maybe things have gone well. It's quarter to nine. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe by now, she's in the mood. Yes, if you're lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky. So yeah, so you can seduce her with a bit of D minor. It's yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And I think Russia, you know, they, they want to appeal to the girl in the corner who doesn't necessarily la- like the loud electric rock music. I mean, she wants to hear a little bit of Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> you know, just simple lines intertwining. It's very funny listening back to heavy metal because Spinal Tap has done it so well. Mm. And then you realise that Spinal Tap is a celebration of why this stuff works mm. and will always work. Mm. The simplicity and the directness of it and the fact that it's copyable is what makes heavy metal this genre almost more than anything else that's formal that you learn the rules for and then you can replicate it if you started a band based roughly on the formula of this first rush album you'd still find an audience now because heavy metal is formal and repeating and learning the the the, the tradition it's like folk tradition of Mm. heavy metal in a way that almost no other genre has such strict rules Mm. it's got to have loud overdriven guitars thumping drums screeching vocals that's the formula, it still is. Yeah, yeah. All you can hear in this first album is this is a really well-drilled band. There's only three of them, massive noise mm. coming off them. Alex Lifeson, completely, I think, oddly, an underrated guitarist within oh. the pantheons yeah. of rock. He's really good. He's Most of the noise at this point is coming off him. Mm. The whole thing is based on him like early Led Zeppelin is based on Jimmy Page. Mm. He's a brilliant guitarist, beautiful bass line, this squealing vocal at the top and the big solid rhythm section. It's great. They're working really hard and they carry on working really hard and everyone can see that they're not in it to become massive stars Mm. or to 
uh, screw a load of groupies, despite what the songs are saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they are here because they really like being in a band. Mm. And again, it reminds me of being a school band. Why are you in a school band? Because you love it. We were rehearsing in my basement and playing with these guys. They weren't Jewish guys. We were really loud and it didn't sound anything like music to my family. What you can hear in it is a thing that is in common with a lot of bands I've been in and bands I love is that until they hear themselves on record for the first time, they don't realise their lyrics are terrible. Mm. Because you've performed live, and live you can't hear. Mm. A PA in Canada, the drinking age in 1974 was about 21. Mm. So most of the time they've been in a band, they've been playing schools. Once again, we're back at the Laura Secord Secondary School. We've got a great trio of guys here that call themselves Rush, and I think we'll let John, the drummer, introduce the rest of the guys to you right now. Through terrible PA systems. They haven't been playing proper bars or rock bars. They're playing schools through a PA. We played a lot of Sadie Hawkins dances. We played a lot of dances where people couldn't dance very well because we weren't really a dance band. Two things that will happen when you play through a school PA. One, no one can hear the lyrics. As long as someone's singing, Mm. he's got long hair, he's at the front, he's wearing a caftan, Mm. everyone's happy. The second thing, through a bad PA, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, in a rehearsal room or a bad PA, the first thing you do is you go very high Mm. because it's really hard to cut above the sound of a loud guitar and drums. As Lou Reed said, cymbals eat vocals. If you go in there and sing like Scott Walker, Mm. or even at a middling range, you will not be able to hear yourself or pitch. So the tendency is to go up which is where you get that new wave seal bark. Mm. The Elvis Costello up there. Yeah. Early, early XTC is up yeah. there. Yeah. And Getty is where Robert Plant was in cheap rehearsal studios. Up the top! Yeah, Scree- yeah. That screech is just to make yourself heard. Yes. What ACDC have got. It's in bad bars. It will cut through a yeah, PA. Yeah, yeah. And what you're singing isn't important. It's just that there's a noise up there, a high squealing noise. Mm. And then you get the record back and go, oh, God, you can hear the lyrics. Yeah, And that's yeah. why Michael Stipe buried all his lyrics in the early REM. Right. Because yeah. he didn't have them finished. Yeah, yeah. It's very common that a band who are a massive live act or a party band, mm. which Rush were and REM were, only find out their lyrics are a bit uh-huh, when they are either asked to type out the lyric sheet or they hear their first album back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go, quick, get us a sort of slightly libertarian Ayn Rand obsessed drummer. Yeah. He'll do that. Yeah. The stars on the line, oh, the gods on the line. Blame is better to give than receive. Because the grand sweep of prog, and we'll kind of stray into prog a little bit, I guess, and I'm certainly a fan of some of the prog acts of Yes and Jethro Tull yeah. and the others, Rick Wakeman. There's a sort of, there's, there's a grandiosity. We're better than just ordinary rock and roll because yeah. we're writing about books we've read <laughs> and films we've seen. And Cliff's Notes. We are the Cliff's Notes we band. <laughs> you won't believe what happens in this. I'm Sting. You won't believe what happens in this book I've read. <laughs> And, yeah, and will the men in the audience go on this journey with us and will they understand everything we're singing? Yeah. And can they listen to a nine-minute song without needing the loo? All at once, the clouds are parted Light streams down in bright unbroken beams Rush are a big success. They're a massive band. They sold millions and millions of records. But they're a niche band. They're not... Led Zeppelin. They're not even Black Sabbath. They're not mm. one of those big names. They are a cult band within heavy metal and prog. 
but they belong to their fans because they sing for their fans. They are giving voice to your insecurities. They yeah. give voice to, and the insecurities very often of suburban nerds and people who are worried about themselves. They don't have that cockiness. And again, why is Rush Rush the first one funny? Is they're acting cocky mm. in a way they're never going to act cocky again. Mm. Oh, hey, now, baby. They're going to act nervous and nerdy and questioning and puzzled and inquisitive for the rest of their career. But them pretending to be Robert Plant is hilarious and charming. Yes. Because they got it very slightly wrong. Yeah, yeah. And that tells you again that they're yearning and reaching for something that they missed. And we've got the benefit of hindsight there. They're just singing what they know. Yeah. And this first album, well, it was made the same year I was born, 74. And it's only looking back on it now going, oh, listen to them, bless them. As you say, that they're doing it for the fans, and and in that same way, they toured relentlessly yeah. for years, and they released enormous number of albums. There was never that sense that oh, we might be a bit like Dylan, we might just disappear, and we might be <laughs> terrible live, or we might kind of produce some sort of orchestral album or some sort of risky. It was like, don't worry, we're going to go into synth stuff, and we're going to record even longer songs, or we're going to. But it will always be an attempt. You know, don't, we're not going anywhere. We're going to yeah. be here. We'll, we'll be back in Montreal next year. Don't worry, we'll be we'll carry on touring. You know, and, they, and they're, they're trying to please you. Yeah, and the way they did it as well. I'm always really charmed by the way they sold out without ever selling out. Their sound changes by the time they're in the mid 80s there's loads of synths there's bits of them that sound like level 42 Mm. that proper mtv has taken over they're always big anglophiles there's a lot of that in there but there's stuff that sounds like really good synthy 80s pop Mm. They go through a period where they're not screeching and doing songs about tolkien Mm. they're singing about the same subjects as thomas dolby would do it's nerdy synth rock Mm. And they're really good at it. Yeah. And when they do Spirit of Radio, you don't go, oh, you've completely sold out to have a hit. You go, no, that's still a Rush song. Yeah. I think it's charming the way they, they put on those clothes and and didn't look like they would been forced to. Yeah. yeah. Everything looks like their choice. Yeah. And even though... Neil's lyrics remain incredibly sort of stentorian and, <laughs> and sort of preachy and polemical. That's part of the charm, and you kind of buy into it. And I would love to talk to you know diehard Rush fans and say, do you find this funny? Do you think this you know? Do you, are you aware of the kind of humour in this or not? Or whether or they go, no, 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 this is all deeply serious, you know. They've got something in common there with, say, Manic Street Preachers, Mm. where there's nothing about the lyrics that is funny, it's Mm. not a joke, but the intense seriousness and the intense hard work they put into the lyrics is funny. Mm. It becomes a joke. And every time you see Nicky Wire interviewed, he's a really funny guy. Mm. There's no way he doesn't know that the incredible seriousness of his band is not... (laughs) On the edge of hysteria. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, they're kind of like the indie rock rush. Yeah. Not vastly different in terms of they're a little three-piece who make a bloody great racket. Yeah, quite yeah. Integ- yeah, I think if you like the Manic Street Preachers, you get why Rush are good. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Life was given for 
that's the charm of this first album is it's a band who are going to go on to become a very very literate and very very beloved prog band in their raw form and in their raw form they are every band you like lots of people i know who have been in school bands and then stopped being in school bands fixate brilliantly on the time you were in a band Mm. and i love the fact that anyone i know who was in a band you are always three glasses of wine Yes. away from them playing you their school band. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it's a magical time in people's lives. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was more of a university band than a school band, but, you know, similar sort of feel, except maybe slightly more grandiose. It's like, let's not, let's not do covers, we thought. Let's not just do covers. Let's write our own songs. Well, yeah, because you're Megalodon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we've saved the world on numerous occasions. We sang a song about saving the world from a, a bunch of space sharks, you know, sharks yeah. literally flying around the moon and encircling it. You know, who's written a song about that? We have. Fight me, fight me, sacrifice your pride. It's Demogalodon, Demogalodon, Demogalodon. Guide. I'm always interested in how different people at the top of their game are envious of other people. I heard a very funny story about the Coronation Street Christmas party in which most of the players from Manchester United turned up and stood awestruck looking at the Coronation Street actors. And the Coronation Street actors stood awestruck looking at the Man United footballers because they're both totally in awe of each other. And finally, you know, one of the wallflowers peeled off and spoke to to an actor and one of the actors spoke to a footballer and and by the end of the night they were having a a wonderful time. But I think there's not a rock star in the world who doesn't look at an actor or a movie star and think, God, I'd love to be a movie star. And there isn't a movie star in the world who doesn't look at a musician and go, oh, just being in... I I bet you any big movie star would look at Alex Lifeson and go, look at how fast his fingers are going up and down that fretboard. I'd love to be Alex Lifeson. That total confidence is in there. I was talking to Chris Drever, the fantastic folk guitarist from Lau and solo act and things. And I said to him, I said, he just played this beautiful gig at Cestra Sharp House. Brilliant. Fingers going like the clappers on mm. the fretboard. And I said, that's amazing. When you get up there, do you know you can do that? And he went, yeah, of course I do. Mm. And I said, oh, that confidence. You're that good. That that bit is automatic. Mm. The muscle memory is that good. That is a magical thing to watch, whether it's a concert pianist or a great heavy metal prog guitarist. Mm. The fact they know they can do it. Mm. And then on top of it, you go, so what are you insecure about? And it will be, I don't want to be famous or I'm or insecure about my lyrics. Mm. Or what do I look like? Mm. I love the fact that Russia, a blend of total uh, expertise mm. and a slight awkwardness. The yes. gawkiness is why they're lovely. Yes, exactly that. Exactly that. Because it comes with that arrogance then. Where do these, these virtuoso displays have also got a certain sort of, oh, I'm just a sort of nerdy Canadian guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's something deeply charming about that. And, and trying on the big boots, trying on the, the worldliness. And as a slightly older listener, you can hear that attempt to reach forward. And this is what it's like being a grown-up rock star. And in fact, <laughs> Fly By Night, which is their second album, has got a lovely song about wanting to be a rock star. Best I can. I've got to live in that's tough, a future that's rough, you know what I mean. Blankers and boasters, all the buffers and posers. I'm not into that scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. Isn't that great? And I, st- I, I, I when I wanted to be an actor, I, was, I guess I was listening to the music when I th- first thought, well, maybe I want to be an actor. And I had my brother, Lance, who's a big Rush fan, that got me into them saying, hey, listen to this, you know, don't give me speeches because they're all so dull. I think it's dull. It's a droll here. 
just leave me alone, let me rock and roll. That idea of like, mm. I know it might not work, I know I might not make it as a rock star, but I'm bloody well going to try. And that's, you know, of an actor who's nearly 50, I still think, yeah, not sure if it's working, but I'm going to bloody well keep trying. And best I can really, really sum that up for me. I suppose, in a way, it's a kind of blueprint for all good art, which is to say, listen to this, look at this, watch this, read this. You can do this too. Yeah. But not quite. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know a I great mean? point. Yeah. You kind of, you could follow the instructions and follow the blueprint. But I tell you what, you're not going to be quite as good as us, which is why you're listening to this record. And you know what I mean? You're just yeah. slightly out of reach. What this album is, like a lot of really good classic heavy metal albums that people learn are still do the riffs in guitar shops mm. is it is a recipe book by Heston Blumenthal mm. a chef who you could not possibly hope to cook as well as but mm. here's the instructions yeah, yeah. here are the ingredients yes it's really clear it's laid out yeah. your one will not look like this or taste <laughs> like this yeah. because he's special yeah but the book is available yeah yeah here's how it's done yeah. and you might have to just practice and that's life that's the process of enjoying art is is it's a it's a it's a it's a repeated pattern of (laughs) witnessing something brilliant and beautiful that you think you might be able to do and possibly trying it but knowing in your heart that you probably won't be as good (laughs) as the thing you've just read or seen or watched and that's life i guess and then if you're lucky you get to kind of you get close to it and then that's when you glimpse isn't there there's a ken campbell line about practicing something and doing it something so beautifully that just for a minute you can glimpse you know, Elysian Fields or something, just kind of yeah. peering over the wall and just seeing magic. Well, the fantasy of this is when you're in a school band and whichever band has shown you the recipe for doing this and you've copied them, whoever it is, you're always off doing cover versions or whatever. And you clumsily work your way through it in the same way as I follow a recipe. And mm. in the end, it, the, the cake sinks a bit, mm. but it still tastes okay. But mm. oh, it's very nice, whatever. That's what performing as a non-famous band is like. People mm. come along and go, well, that's pretty good. I was expecting it to not be this good. Mm. Oh, you, you the recipe it tasted the same sort of as the real one. The fantasy, the Elysian Fields, the Ken Campbell thing you're fantasizing about is being this good at it. The ease with which you can do it. It's not awkward. It's... You want that balletic skill that they're displaying. Mm. And you might not like this music, but you can't deny they're really good at playing it. Yeah, yeah. And that, I think, is what's inspirational when bands like this appear and become beloved of musicians Mm. who grew up on them, Mm. that they've copied them. And you interview anyone in heavy metal, they will say, we used to like Rush. Yeah, yeah. Because they published a really good recipe book to copy. Yeah. And the fantasy was to be as good at cooking it as they were. Mm. And also there's something, you know, I always think that your favourite Shakespeare play when you're 18 might be Hamlet, and by the time you're 70, it's probably going to be King Lear. You know, your tastes change, and you look back on the 18-year-old you that loved Hamlet and go, oh, yes, I remember that that version of me. And in the same way that we listen to those early Beatles songs and we, 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 love, we love who those four men were singing yeah. those passionate love songs. And that, that, that there's exactly this feel in this first Rush album of the ambition of youth and all that sort of thing. And it's just very, very charming, very touching. 
The overreach of it is part of it. Yeah, exactly. And the gawkiness, the fact that these people, in inverted commas, shouldn't be doing it. Understanding a band's gaucheness and forgiving a band's gaucheness and, in fact, embracing a band's mm. gaucheness, saying, this isn't a problem for me. The, the conditions of entry is, I've got to put up with this. Yeah, great. There's that lovely pavement song where they refer to Geddy Lee. What about the voice of Geddy Lee? How did it get so high? I wonder if he speaks like an ordinary guy. I know him, and he does. And you're my fact-checking cut. Oh, my fact-checking cuts. <laughs> that is 100% my relationship with Rush. Yeah. I go, oh, he's singing very high. Yeah. yeah. Well, he speaks like an ordinary guy. Yeah. That is how it felt listening to Rush as a kid. I was interested. Yeah. They looked gawky and weird. I love that. Yeah. Because then they're yours. They belong yeah. to you. Mm. I'm fascinated by Geddy Lee as a front man. Mm. His parents were Holocaust survivors. Mm. He's this tall, gawky guy with sort of straight Neil the hippie mm. hair mm. and his big nose and his mm. glasses off. And he's just this sort of slightly <laughs> nebbishy kid. Mm. And the other person from American rock who has that look and that ethnic background is Joey Ramone, ah, who he yeah. looks like. Big, right, tall, right. gawky. Yeah. Joe Ramone, deathly cool. Yeah. Full rock yeah. armour on. There's no way that guy isn't the coolest guy in the venue. Yeah. Watch him interviewed. Talks like Geddy Lee, thinks like Geddy Lee. Right, Sorry, right. left wing, sort of strange, gawky guy doesn't fit in. He is a gawky guy. Mm. But rock gives him this cool, this punk cool that means he's kind of unassailably, undeniably, brilliantly ungawky. Mm-hmm. Whereas Getty stays gawky. Mm. And I think that's why he's accessible. As in, even though he's dressed in these ludicrous clothes, these glam rock clothes, you go, oh, that's me. That's what I'm... I'd look like that. Mm. The importance of a nerdy front man, of a shy person like Michael Stipe, or mm. a, a neurodivergent person like David Byrne, mm. or a gawky Jewish kid like Getty Lee, mm. is that it says the conditions for entry to this art form are not that you're beautiful. Mm. And that is also really inspiring. Yeah, yeah. I think, as a gawky teenager. Yeah, I mean, listening to Van Halen, looking at David Lee Roth and thinking, he is impossible. (laughs) I can't ever, I can't ever be or look or sound or be anything like him. That's, and listening to that music, and, and it's, a, it's a different source of aspiration. It's yeah. like, well, that's him, and I'll, no one ever will be like him. But getting he's much more attainable. <laughs> well, you said, you, you're, a you're a fan. I mean, I've, I'm a huge David Lee Roth fan as well. I've played um, you that interview we did with Danny Baker, <laughs> which is just chock full of extraordinary quotes. But yes, my, my aim is to, you know, what I do is, is I feed you back your youth, you know. It's familiar stuff. And this, you, and this kind you... of music is anthemic now. Yeah. This is gone. I'm selling you back your youth. That's right. This stuff is familiar to you as the roof of your mouth he says yeah i'm selling you back you know all those the times we grew up we made up we threw up he's selling you your childhood back yeah and i think the experience of re-listening to rush is very informed by the reaction i had to it a few years ago I went, what i used to like that mm. you saying listen to it again I went, oh this is as familiar to me as the roof of my mouth mm. this is very comforting it's just selling me back my childhood, but not in the David Lee Roth kind of way of going, oh, I feel all free and I'm mm. running down the road like Christopher Robin. Mm. I'm awkward and nervous like yeah. Christopher Robin. I'm remembering how much I wanted to be these guys. Mm. And I want to be these guys because they looked as awkward, gawky and embarrassed as I was. Mm. It's really charming. Yeah, yeah. And it somehow baked into their awkwardness mm. is my teenage mm. In the same way as when I watch Gregory's Girl. Yeah. I find it. Or read Adrian Mole. Yeah. That gawkiness is everything, but dressed up in rock and roll, mm. which is meant to be this armour against gawkiness. Mm. And that first album is them in full armour. Yes. And you go, 
Oh, look at little you inside your armour. <laughs> Absolutely. And look at little me listening to it, identifying with those those cool kids and realising, <laughs> oh, I was just trying on the armour as well. It's a brilliant... It is an absolute door back into teenager childhood mm. in a way that I, th- I don't think I was expecting to find again. Yeah, yeah. What a magical thing. Thank yeah. you for bringing Rush. Rush! Rush! Thank the you, The real John. album. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.